So we continue our series on Romans. Today we're doing Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes, sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, you have called us here today to hear your word. Give Addison Addison the wisdom to bring your word to us today, Lord. Let the Spirit give him discernment. But open our ears and soften our hearts that your word will produce fruit in our lives. Fruit that will manifest as we follow your call to build God's kingdom. Amen. You got the cue. You may be seated. The, uh, the other day, Theo, my five-year-old son, and I sat down to write a letter. We well, actually were kind of laying on the carpet. We weren't really sitting, but we laid down to write a letter to uh, Aunt Steph. Aunt Steph is Lynette, my wife's sister, and so we wrote a letter, and it's just something we try and do from time to time just to stay connected with family, and in it we uh, were explaining some of the things that were going on in our life, some of the things that Theo's been doing in school. We were asking them some of, some of the things that are going on in their life. What's it like for, he's got two cousins, Lachlan and Jameson. What are you guys doing? What's up? Uh, how's Nico, the youngest, doing? And then we talked about a shared experience that we had all had together and dreamt about a time when we could do it again, jump in the bounce house again at Mimi and Papa's. And then we concluded it by saying how much we loved them. Now, to you guys, you hear that and you think, well, that sounds really great, but I don't know a whole lot of the things that you're talking about. I don't know who Mimi and Papa are. Uh, you don't have a context for Lachlan and Jameson. You know me, and you might know Theo. He runs around this building. If you come at the 10 o'clock service, you'll see and hear him in the back row. But that's a little bit of uh, the picture, in one sense, of, of what Paul, writing a letter to the Roman church, is like. I mean, we are reading and going through Romans 12 through 16, and Paul wrote this letter to a particular group of people at a particular time. Seminary professor of mine used to have us recite three things every time we had class, and one of them is he would say, context is 
And we would always say, king. Context is king. You need context to understand the letter that I wrote with Theo to Aunt Steph. You would have to do some digging to understand what was that shared experience like? What are some of the things that Theo's been learning? Where is he learning them from? So on and so forth. We have to do the same thing for this letter in Romans because if we look at our passage today, verses 9 through 21, there's a lot of great coffee cup verses in there. Let love be genuine. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A bunch of verses that you and I are well familiar with. But if we don't do some hard work of understanding the context, both where it falls in Scripture, so what's it leading to, but then also when was it written and what was going on in that day? Why is Paul saying this to a group of Jesus followers in Rome? So I'm going to do a little bit of that this morning before we dive into our text, because I think it's important for us to understand what was going on in around A.D. 57. It's a long time ago for us. So in Rome, where these Christians are, we'll call them Christians, that wasn't really what they were calling themselves yet in the day, Jesus followers, both Jewish and Gentile. So before Nero was reigning in Rome, which is probably who's reigning at this time, Claudius, the previous emperor, sent the Jewish uh, believers, anyone who followed uh, Judaism, he sent them out of Rome. So they were exiled for a period of time, then they came back. So that included the Jewish Jesus followers, so the Jewish Christians of the day. Now remember, that's a part of the audience that Paul is writing to. That is outlined for us in other parts of the book that we haven't gone through, but we'll get back to that later as well in later chapters, 13, 14. And so you've got these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians were able to hang out in Rome while the Jewish Christians were out. And so you've got these two different parties who practice their beliefs in two different ways. You know, they practice them. Uh, the Jewish Christians would, would hold on to some of their tradition and the way that they had worshipped Yahweh for so long. They thought some of that still needed to be a part of how they worshipped in that day. And the Gentiles, I mean, they didn't have those traditions. They weren't a part of God's people for years and years and years. And so they had their own traditions. They did their own things. Eating certain types of meat was fine for them, but not okay for some of the Jewish Christians. Worshiping in a home or a catacomb was fine for the Gentile Christians, but maybe not okay for the Jewish Christians. And I could go on. There's lots of things that categorized each side of these, but the point being is now these two groups of Christians are forced together to worship God, to follow Jesus in Rome and they had lots of differences. Does it sound like a time that we know? It sounds like today, doesn't it? It sounds like our very context. Certainly the differences might be a little uh, different and, and wouldn't look the same as they did then. But Paul is writing this letter to a group of people that in one sense Maybe act and live a lot like you and I do. And so this morning, I want to work through these verses, and I want to have a good understanding of this, because this is the, the meat off the bone, these verses are. These are the meat off the bone. I love the, the way uh, an author, Scott McKnight, uh, said this, he, he, he put this in, in a book that he wrote called Reading Romans Backwards, which I think is really helpful because 
You think about Romans, you know, Paul is writing to these two groups. It's not like we've been saying, it's not a doctrinal letter, but it's a missionary letter. And so Scott McKnight writes and says this, Romans 12 through 16 is not the application of Paul's theology, nor is Romans a classic example of the indicative leading to the imperative. Now, he's not saying that that stuff isn't true. He's just saying the letter as a whole is not the classic example. But what Paul has in focus was the lack of praxis, the lack of a lived theology, the lack of peace in Rome. And he wrote Romans both to urge a new kind of lived theology, which is 12 through 16, and then he also offered the rationale 1 through 11 for that practice. So today we are going to read some of what's at the core of what it looked like to have a lived theology in Rome. So what does it look like to live together in community with people that have differences? People that may sit across the aisle either in church or maybe on our political and social spectrum. How do we live as Jesus followers like sacrificial living as Paul said in verses 1 through 2? Now this certainly, those texts have to prop up our verses without verses 1 through we don't have verses 9 through 21. So we can't just take those coffee cup verses and use them without remembering where they came from. Remember, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship or your spiritual worship is what some translations say. Friends, we're called to be living sacrifices And what we see here is that we must have a gospel posture. We must have a a posture that reflects love to those around us. To those certainly who believe the same thing that you and I believe. To those that have faith, our lives should reflect love onto them. But certainly also we'll see in our text that we love those around us who differ than us too that don't believe the same things we do. It's a different kind of love, but it's a love nonetheless. But also, a big part of what Paul's talking about, and this is where I've been sitting in the past few weeks, is that we're to resist or reject, I couldn't find the right R, but I knew I needed to have one, evil. We need to reject or resist evil. So let's just jump in. We'll look at verses uh, 9 through uh, 13 there, it's kind of the first half of of the text. Let love be without hypocrisy or let love be genuine, says in the ESV, different translations. Uh, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And that's kind of our thesis statement, our thesis verse as we move forward. It kind of breaks everything up for us nicely. So verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So this answers the question, who do we reflect love to? Well, as the verse says, we rejoice or we love one another with brotherly affection. So one another, who are one another? Well, Paul is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing it to the the house church in Rome. It's certainly going to make a little circuit and and probably go to a few different house churches or maybe they're meeting in the catacombs. You say house just to get the idea of number. It certainly wasn't the size of our church like we've said before. So Paul is writing it to them and he's saying, love one another. Have brotherly affection for one another. 
So who? We're to love each other. Now this is something that if you're familiar with your Bible, comes right from Jesus. Jesus in what we like to call his, his, uh, the last apologetic is saying, this is how the world's going to know who you are, that you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer has some great work on these things, and I would commend that work to you. But what Paul is doing is echoing Jesus' words here and saying, look, we are called at the very least to love one another, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And not just to have this, you know, love, just sort of this big, sometimes overused word, but to have a brotherly affection. There's two Greek words in here. I won't bore you with what they are, but both of them have familial sort of connotations to them. One you're probably familiar with is Philadelphia, actually. I mean, it's the city of brotherly love. That's where they get that from, to have a brotherly love for one another. But the other one is a devoted love. They have a devoted love, one, a love that doesn't leave somebody, but clings to them, is with them in the good and the bad. This is the kind of love we're to have for one another and has familial overtones. I love to think about it this way. Think about the way you love your family. So you love your brothers and your sisters, your cousins, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, but if you're like me, like, I, I don't hang out with my cousins. We don't share a lot of things in common. They live in different places. We don't have the same affinities and likes. But I still love them. I mean, they're my family. I would still do a lot for them. I may not hang out with them very often, but I would still do things for them. See, this brotherly, devoted, familial love that Paul is calling the Christians of that time to, and you and I subsequently, It's a love that sort of goes past those affinities. It goes past the the similarities. It's non-selective. It's non-discriminatory. I love not because we can talk about the same things together. I love you not because we can go to a baseball or basketball game together. I love you not because we can play music together but I love you because you are made in the image of God. I love you because I've been so loved that I can have an overflowing heart of love to you. I love you despite our differences. There's a bondedness, an affection, a devotedness like a family. That's the love that Paul is calling Christians to. So he goes on, so that's the, that's the who we love, but how do we love? In what way do we love one another? We continue the second half of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, and contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. So what way is Paul calling Christians to love? By action. There are a lot of action verbs and words that are used in here. There's not a lot of passivity that is allowed for this type of love. It's very active. So outdo one another in showing honor. You know, prop other people up before yourself. Give them the honor before you get the honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
But go forward. Be serving the Lord. Rejoice. Actively work through these things. Be constant in prayer. And then the, the, the real kicker, contribute to the needs of the saints. It's going to cost something to love. See, when we're bonded together in Christ, there is a real tangible cost to what it looks like to love. Now, the easy uh, or the, maybe the simplest place for us to go with this is a financial cost. We, we do need to contribute to people who are in need. For those that have lost a job because of COVID and can't find work. Or for those who are being evicted from their apartments or different places. We gather around as a church and we show our love for them by giving of our own finances and our own cash to help them in their circumstances. That's why we have a deacon's fund. And we use that deacon's fund to tangibly love those in our community and in our context. But we need to be doing that as a congregation constantly. But I think there's another cost. There's a cost of our time going and serving people, being with them as they're going through hardships, bringing meals to people, Raking their leaves or snow plowing for them if they need to. These are just small ways that we do this. I think for our context, the best way to think about this is in, is in our smaller communities. You see, we can sit here in a, in a group of about 80 or 90 people and say, well, how do I know the needs of everyone in here? How do I know what they actually need? How can I love them? What does that look like? I mean, one way is to contact the deacons. They certainly have a list of those things. But another is to be in a smaller context of people, to be in something like a C group, to be in a group where you're sharing your needs with each other in prayer. That's actually what Paul calls him to do. Be constant in prayer. Be in a group where you can rejoice in hope together, where you can be patient in your tribulation and the things that you're feeling from the world. So in our context, gathering in smaller groups so we can know these needs, so we can express that genuine love to one another, I think is a really important way for us to do this. And the last little thing we have to think about in this section is, so how do we do this? Well, it just goes back to, to verse 1 in Romans 12. We do this because of the mercies of God. See, this isn't just a, a love that you and I kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, a love that we just kind of, you know, wake up in the morning and work real hard at loving people. It requires us to look in the mirror and to say, I've been loved. God loved me, a sinner, someone who's, like Paul would say, the chief of sinners. I know all the, the wicked things I've thought and said and did and the way I've thought about people. But yet God showed his love to me. Certainly there is a way for me to respond. There's an overflow of that. That Galatians 2.20 passage that we read is, is such a great text. I've been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And it's Christ living in me that allows me to show this kind of love to the people around me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, 
one of the distinctions that Paul was trying to make. And he did this in a lot of other places as well. You can go to 1 Corinthians 13 to look at this as well. He's trying to say love has to be rooted in something. You can't just do things. You can't just have prophecy. You can't just teach. You can't just gather and share a meal and show hospitality. Those are good things, but if it's not rooted in the love that Christ has had for you, and that's where your love comes from, then it's for nothing. First Corinthians 13, if I do all these things, if I do all the gifts, he lists a, a similar list of gifts that we talked about last week. If I do all these things but don't have love, it's for nothing. It's for nothing. So we have a transformed life, and it comes from Christ. It comes from Christ living in us. By the mercies of God, we live sacrificial lives that reflect love. How many of you looked in the mirror today? That's it. Some of you are well-dressed for not looking in the mirror. (laughs) I looked in the mirror today, and I had to change a few things about how I was presenting myself. I also changed the way I thought about myself. I mean, I need to work out a little bit more. I need to do a better job of trimming my beard next time. And there's some gray hairs coming through that I didn't notice, too. You see, a mirror is such a great example of reflection. So you look in a mirror, and you're looking at yourself, and it will transform the way that you maybe present yourself, maybe the way that you groom yourself, maybe the way you think about yourself. In the same ways, we look in a mirror, and what we see as Christians is Christ. We see Christ's righteousness given to us freely, at no cost to you and I. And that's what we reflect out. We reflect that love that Christ gave to us. That sacrificial love that Christ had for you and I to the world. I think it transforms our lives in a couple more ways. I've already mentioned a few. I think that it will transform our speech the way in which we talk to one another, the words that we use, the way we construct our sentences. Not just in a grammatical way, but in a way that props other people up, that honors people above ourselves. Not just verbally, but I think even online, more so online. The way we talk about one another, about brothers and sisters in Christ, that have different views than you do, that believe different things about the way the world should work, that will probably vote differently than you may vote, that will probably send their kids to schools at different places you may send your kids, yet they love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. Our sacrificial living has to change the way that we talk about and to those people. The sacrificial love converts our actions so that it's not what we do to others is determined not just by what we're doing, but what we can do for them. The key difference there, our love converts our actions so that what we do to others is determined principally by what we can do for them. How can we serve them? How can we love them? How can we give them things that, that help them in their struggles Bearing one another's burdens. 
Simply put, it's the golden rule. We just treat others the way you and I would like to be treated. But thirdly, and, and maybe more importantly, as we remember that this, that God loved us as sinners, it inspires our worship. And when we comprehend how God's love reaches those who were loveless toward him, we're ready to kneel before him in humility and sing to him in praise. It's a quote that I got from a commentator. I think he puts it so well. This goes back to that true and proper, that spiritual worship that we have as living sacrifices. This is how we worship God, by loving other people genuinely. That's a part of our worship. It's not just what we're doing this morning. It goes beyond that. It's when you leave today and you love people. It's tomorrow when you go to work or you see someone that's hard to love. You're worshiping God by sacrificially loving that person. So then the second half of our text, it's actually kind of the more uh, robust part of it. We look at the idea of resisting evil or rejecting evil. There's a thread that kind of draws all of this second half together. There's persecution and and tribulation. There's, There's evil. I mean, these are the things that happen when we follow Jesus. You think about the Christians of that time, Jewish and Gentile. This was not a popular movement. This wasn't sort of what the masses were doing. They weren't worshiping Jesus. Jesus was being ridiculed. Christians were being ridiculed for what they believed during this time. And so Paul is trying to get at that and trying to say, look, your sacrificial living has to continue to embody this love amidst persecution. But not only that, you have to change and be different than the way the empire is living. So I think Paul does two things here as he addresses this idea head on. He is first subverting the empire of the day. So we've talked about the beliefs and the way that Rome worked during the day. It was not a place uh, for the meek and for the lowly. It was, it was dog eat dog in some sense. It was how do I climb to the top? How do I associate with, with the rich the famous, how do I uh, get in the right circles and just leave everybody, maybe even family, behind? There was no outdoing one another uh, in honor, showing someone else honor above yourself. I mean, you can just read through some of these verses and kind of get at what Paul is trying uh, to say to them. Bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That was not something that was done during that time. No one associated with the lowly by choice. You ended up there, not out of any, anything you wanted. You wanted to get out of that situation. But Paul is saying, no, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And never be wise in your own sight. He's trying to subvert the empire of the day. The Roman rule in life was not like this. Again, this idea of not seeking revenge in this cultural climate, what Paul is talking about. You know, do not repay evil for evil, but do what's honorable in the sight of all. I mean, this was not a common uh, belief of the time. Here's a quote from Aristotle. Uh, the idea, uh, this was totally backwards. The Greek culture would say that to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble, 
And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. That is how the Romans were living during the day. That was Greek culture of the day. They, they wanted to outdo one another. They wanted to, to be at the top. But that is not what Christ, that is not what Paul is commending to this group. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. The fact that Paul is having to tell different groups of Jesus followers this same idea means that this was just not the way the world worked at that time. See, it's most loving to, hum- to humble yourself. It's most loving to be at peace with all. This comes from Jesus' mouth, Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So a part of how the Christians of the day, and you and I, brothers and sisters, resist or reject evil, is by not falling into the cultural way of doing things. By not allowing ourselves to be swept up by the talk and rhetoric that goes on around us, but to remember that Christ has laid out a path for us, a path to love, a path to serve, a path that will resist and reject evil or sin. So right now we live in sort of a, a revenge culture, you know, a, a cancel culture, as some people say. So refusing to retaliate is how we worship with our bodies. It is by refusing to adopt the revenge culture of our world that we show forth the renewal of our minds. That is one of the thrusts through this section. We'll get to it in chapter 13. Paul does talk about justice and following authorities and a right place and practice for those things. But here he is saying, look, God is the one who will repay. He is judge. You are not judge. It's God who sits over these things. So, so there's two ways that we, we see this. And the first one uh, was that Paul was saying to subvert the empire of the day. And the second, it's kind of like our, our first half, is that everything is infused with the gospel. I love the word shalom because it has this great sort of peaceful meaning to it. We all think shalom, peace, but it's not just sort of this passive peace. We want peace to exist. There is an action that kind of comes with shalom, that I want to see you flourish. I want to see peace come. I'm going to help bring along that peacemaking. It's not just the lack of confrontation and violence, but it's that act of intentional flourishing. And that is a big part of what Paul is getting at here, to live in harmony, to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, to live at peace with everyone, means that you and I need to remember and seek that out, to make choices that it would be easier to respond and argue and to rebuttal or to cancel somebody out or to push them aside or to say something that cuts them down. But what God is calling us to do is to live at peace with people, is to work through our disagreements, to remember that Christ is central to all of what we are doing. Paul uses the language of blessing those that persecute you. You know, to, to be a blessing so typically is something that's associated with what God is doing. God is the one bringing blessing. 
And so to bless one's persecutors, therefore, is to call God to bestow his love on them, his favor upon them. I don't know if you're like me, but that's hard. It's hard to bless those that persecute or that say negative things about me and my life. So we have to actively seek these things out. This requires right thinking. It's that transforming, that transformed mind that we have. It's a proper understanding of our gospel place. The loving heart, a genuine heart. We abhor what is evil. This is sacrificial living. So think about how to wrap this up. Paul in this text, writing to a group of Jewish and Gentile Christians, coming together, worshiping together, wanting to, to love one another. He's saying, look, you've got to put some of your differences aside. You've got to realize where you're at. You've got to realize what's at the core of who you are. Your transformed lives look like a sacrificial living. You're giving of yourselves in every moment that you're together. It's great quote that kind of sums a lot of this up. The fundamental core of Christoformity is that because you are in Christ, you are not to act according to privilege and power, but instead to love God by offering your entire body daily to God. To live as siblings with all other Christians by welcoming one another and eating at the table with each other and indwelling one another. And to love your Roman or Grand Rapids neighbor as yourself with civility and intentional acts of benevolence. See, friends, the picture that we get here in Romans 12, 9 through 21, is a picture of what it looks like to live as transformed brothers and sisters, to live sacrificially. This whole series that we're talking about, by mercy through Romans 12 through 16, this is at the heart of it. Our genuine love looks like this. Our Christian living looks like this. But we have to remember that it's because of what Christ has done for us that we're even able to attempt these things. We're even able to live this way. Let's pray. Father, we confess, I confess, that I go to this text sometimes and do exactly what I just taught against and pluck it out of context and say, your life should look like this. Or plaster it up on a board. So you should do these things if you want to look like a Christian, if you want to be a Christian. We look at even the headings in our Bibles, Christian ethics, the marks or true signs of a Christian. And these things are good. And in one sense, they're right, but they miss the real thrust and heart of what Paul is saying here. We don't just do these things because they're good to do. We do them because you have called us to them. You've given us an example, a lofty one of them, in your son Christ. See, it's by the mercies of God that we are to do these things, that we're not conformed to this age, that we're transformed, that we can seek out the will of God, see the gospel 
permeates through these simple words and gives us a, a real robust understanding of what Christ has done for us sinners. So Father, we lift and commend this to you that you would continue to work in our lives in these ways. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh,